If you have your Bible with you this morning, please take it out and go back to the verses that were read this morning in John chapter 19. Please go in your Bible to John the 19th chapter. We're going to make reference to several verses in that chapter in a few minutes. As you turn there and get ready to study this morning, I want to say good morning to you. Certainly it's good to see all of you here this morning. Certainly it's wonderful to be together to worship God. I would like to begin by first thanking Brother Brian Sheely for leading us in all the songs we sang this morning, but especially that song we, we just sang together. I really appreciate that. And that's a beautiful song, wouldn't you agree? That, that's a powerful song. That is a song that if you pay close attention at its core, it's about faith. It's about faith in Jesus Christ. It is about faith in the Son of God. It is about challenging ourselves to see the life and the work of the Son of God through the lens of faith. See his miracles through the lens of faith. See his goodness, see his glory, see even his death and his resurrection through the lens of faith. In fact, it is the death part of that song that I really want to focus on this morning. Remember in that song we just sang, there was a part of it where we proclaimed to have watched Jesus die. Remember that? Remember we said, in my heart I crumbled when I watched you die. Let me ask you something. In your time on this earth, have you ever seen anything like that before? Have you ever literally seen anything like that before? Have you ever literally seen someone die? When I was my son's age, about nine or ten years old, I was involved in a horrible car accident. It was a Saturday morning, and my family and I were on our way to a video store. And for you young folks who don't know what a video store is, I recommend you Google that later on, okay? <laughs> but back in the 90s, there was a Saturday morning when my family and I were on our way to a video store, and we were going to rent some movies, and then afterwards we were going we to go get some ice cream. We were just going to have a, a nice, fun day as a family, but not long after we left our house, as we were driving across a road, a small truck merged onto that road, and unfortunately, we, we hit that truck. We didn't see the truck coming, so we hit the truck. We actually hit the back end, the back side of that truck. And I can remember how after we hit the back side of that truck, two men came flying right through the windshield. And they landed right in the middle of the road. And they died right there on the spot. From my understanding, both of those men died instantly and they died suddenly. That is actually the first and the only time in my life when I have literally seen people die. It was a horrible experience, 
that has stood with me for almost 30 years, but I got to tell you that as bad as that experience was for me, that experience and any similar experience that you may have doesn't even begin to come close to the experience that these people had here in John 19. Going back to these verses we just read in John chapter 19, I want you to notice how according to what the scripture says in verse number 25, as Jesus was suffering and dying on the cross, there were a lot of people there who witnessed that. There were a lot of people who saw that with their own eyes. For example, the Bible tells us that Mary, the mother of Jesus, she, she saw that. Mary saw her son die on the cross, and so did her sister. And so did Mary Magdalene, and so did the apostle John, the disciple whom Jesus loved. The Bible says that several followers of Jesus were present at the cross, and they watched him die, and they were not the only ones, right? I mean, let us also not forget the several Roman soldiers who surrounded the cross. And let us also not forget about how many of the chief priests and the scribes and the elders of the Jews, they were also there. They also watched Jesus die. In fact, while watching Jesus die, the scripture says they mocked him. They insulted him. They said he saved others, but he cannot save himself. Let's not forget about the enemies who are also there at the cross. And let's also not forget about ourselves. Let's also not forget about the words we just sang together. Words where we boldly proclaimed to have also watched Jesus die. Let me ask you a question. How in the world did we do that? How in the world could we do that? How in the world could we boldly sing those words? How in the world could we say with boldness and with excitement that we watch Jesus die, even though you and I both know that we're 2,000 years removed from that event? How could we actually watch Jesus die? Well, I submit to you that the only way that we could boldly sing such words is by faith. It is by trust. It is by reading the words of the scripture and rehearsing in our minds and forming vivid mental images of our minds of what the Bible says about that event. That's the only way that we could watch Jesus die. And so this morning in our study, if you don't mind, I, I want us to do that, okay? This morning in our, in our study from God's Word, I, I want us to put into practice the words of the song we just sang. This morning in our study from God's Word, I want us to, to watch Jesus die by faith. I want us to watch him die by trust. I want us to watch Jesus die through the lens of the Scripture. And how about we just begin this journey by traveling first back into our minds to the Garden of Gethsemane. Will you go to the Garden of Gethsemane with me this morning? 
But when you go back to Luke chapter 22 and, and verse number 39, will you notice how after partaking of the Passover meal with, with his disciples in the upper room, the Bible says that Jesus then made his way through the Mount of Olives to a place called Gethsemane. He went to Gethsemane, the garden of Gethsemane, and when he arrived in Gethsemane, remember, the scripture also tells us that Jesus prayed intensely to his father. He, he prayed fervently to his father. He, he prayed to his father, begging him to remove the cup of suffering that he was about to endure if it was the father's will. Can you picture that in your mind? Can you picture Jesus in the garden? Praying to his father, that's what the Bible says took place. And after doing that, the Bible then tells us that Jesus was betrayed by one of the twelve. He was betrayed by Judas. He was betrayed by someone who was very close to him for three years and that he himself appointed to, to be an apostle. But for 30 pieces of silver, Judas makes a deal with some of the chief priests and the elders of the Jews to bring some soldiers to this private spot so that they could arrest Jesus without the crowds getting in their way. The Bible says Jesus in the garden. And he's betrayed by Judas and he's arrested. And then after he's arrested, he then is taken to appear to to before two high priests. First, he's taken to appear before Annas, and Annas is the high priest that was recognized as a legitimate high priest by the Jews. He's taken to Annas out of respect first, and then after he's taken to Annas, he's then taken before the high priest that was recognized as a legitimate one by the Romans. He's taken before Caiaphas. He goes before Annas, and then he goes before Caiaphas, and when he's before Caiaphas, he is questioned. And as Brother Chad said in his remark, there are many false witnesses brought forward to testify against him, and because he proclaimed to be the very Son of God, which he was, and which he proved to be over and over again, he is found guilty of blasphemy and announced to be worthy of death by the Jewish council. He's then spit on, and he's beaten, and he's slapped around, and he's mocked. Some of the people there actually hit him with their fist. They punch him, and they say, prophesy to us, you Christ. Who is the one who hit you? The next morning, he is bound by the chief priests and the elders of the Jews. And he's taken before the Roman prefect of Judea. He's taken before Pontius Pilate. And instead of bringing up the charge of blasphemy that they had the night before, when they bring Jesus before Pilate, they come up with some new charges. They know Pilate's not going to care about blasphemy. They bring up some charges that they believe is going to catch Pilate's attention. Instead of charging him with blasphemy, they charge him with being a troublemaker. 
They charge him with treason. They charge him with, with causing problems for the Roman Empire by saying that this man said you shouldn't pay taxes to Caesar, and he says he's the king of the Jews. They bring up charges that they believe is going to catch Pilate's attention, and those charges certainly did. In fact, after hearing those charges, the scripture then tells us that Pilate took Jesus and he questioned him in private, but he could find no guilt in him. He could find no charges that could be legitimately sustained. And so since King Herod happened to be in town, and since Jesus was from Galilee, Pilate had Jesus sent across town to Herod, but when the Lord refused to do a miracle for Herod, when the Lord refused to do a dog and pony show for him, and, and when the Lord refused to answer Herod's questions, Herod mocked him. He got frustrated, and he sent him back across town to Pilate. And Pilate's frustrated. He continues to find no fault with Jesus, but because the Jews are so insistent, insistent even to the point of demanding the release of a notorious murderer, a notorious criminal named Barabbas, because they won't let the issue go, Pilate literally washes his hand of the moment, and after having Jesus severely scourged, he hands him over to be crucified. He hands him over to be crucified in a place called Golgotha right outside of Jerusalem. And if you don't mind, for just the next few minutes, I want to talk with you about crucifixion, okay? I cannot emphasize enough to you this morning just how horrific history tells us death by crucifixion was. It was the worst death that could be derived from the human mind. It was a death that involved a lot of pain and a lot of suffering. During the time of Jesus, this death was so low and so terrible that the Romans wouldn't even do it to their own people. The Romans wouldn't even crucify their own citizens. No, this agonizing, miserable death was reserved for the lowest of the low. It was reserved for the most hated and despised enemies of Rome, people like the Jews, people who were regarded as troublemakers and disloyal to the empire. You see, through means of crucifixion, the Romans tortured the people that they viewed as the worst criminals. It was not meant to be a humane, quick, and and painless death, like what you find in our criminal justice system. Instead, this death was intended to be brutal. It was designed to be horrific. It was designed to, to make someone suffer to their last breath. Like in the case of Jesus, typically a person would first be whipped severely. They would be scourged. And then they would be forced to carry the the, the huge, heavy cross beam throughout the streets while people mock them and until they eventually reach the place of execution. And after, after having nails driven ferociously into their hands and into their feet, 
As the condemned person hung there, he often fought with dehydration, massive blood loss, shock, dislocated joints, crushed tendons, exposure to the elements, intense pain, insects and birds biting and, and preying on him. Gnats and flies swarming around open wounds and going into their mouth. It was just a truly miserable way to die. In fact, probably the most miserable part of death by crucifixion was how long it took to reach its conclusion. You see, the process of death by crucifixion could take several hours or it could take several days. You see, the Romans often place a little pad underneath the criminal's feet so they could push against and, and breathe a little bit. And don't misunderstand why they did that. They didn't do that for the person's comfort. They didn't do that to delay or, or to make it so the person could experience some ease on the cross. Instead, they did it to delay their death. They wanted them to suffer for as long as possible. They wanted them to suffer for days if possible. And when death finally did come, typically it was from suffocation when the body could no longer support itself. I think John gives us a hint of this in John the 19th chapter. When you look at John 19 and verse 32, notice how the scripture says that the Romans broke the legs of the two thieves who were being crucified with Jesus. Do you see that? Why did they break their legs? Well, they broke their legs to speed up their death so that their bodies would not be hanging there on the Sabbath day. When they got to Jesus Christ, they didn't break his legs because he was already dead. He had already died before the two thieves had. In fact, the scripture indicates that as Jesus hung on the cross between two thieves, he hung there for about six hours. He hung there from the third hour of the day to the ninth hour of the day. And during that time, he was offered wine mixed with myrrh, but he refused to drink it. The soldiers cast lots for his garments. The crowds and the religious leaders, they cheered and they, and they mocked and, and they insulted him. Even the two thieves that he was being crucified with, they shouted insults at him for a period of time. Jesus also prayed for his enemies while he suffered on that cross. The scripture also says that the sun was obscured and there was darkness over the land for, for a period of time. There was also an earthquake that took place and the veil of the temple was torn in two. And after Jesus drank from a sponge mixed with wine and vinegar, the Bible says he cried out to God and he died. In fact, John 19 and verse 34 says that after Jesus died, a soldier pierced his side with a spear and immediately blood and water came out. Here we find a soldier making sure Jesus was dead. They weren't going to take him off that cross until he was dead. The Romans were experts 
and making sure people died on the cross. Now, obviously, there are several other details we could point out this morning concerning the death of our Savior, but these are just a few I want you to think about. These are just a few that I want you to rehearse and picture in your mind as we do our best this morning to watch Jesus die by faith. In fact, I want to conclude this lesson with the second part of the lesson by suggesting to you that when we watch Jesus die by faith, as the scripture emphasizes for us, there's so many lessons we can learn, right? There's so many lessons that we can learn that can help us in our faith and help us in our relationship with God. For example, one of the key lessons we learn from the death of Jesus is, is we learn about the seriousness of sin, don't we? We learn about the seriousness of, of sin. I'm going in my Bible to the book of Romans, and the Apostle Paul talks about this in Romans 6 and verse 23. In Romans, the sixth chapter, and in verse number 23, the Apostle Paul says these words. And keep in mind that in Romans 3 and verse 23, he says that we've all sinned. We've all sinned, and we fall short of the glory of God. And then when you get to Romans 6, 23, he says, For the wages of sin, the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Notice how in the first part of this verse, the Apostle Paul makes it very clear that when it comes to sin, sin carries with it some huge consequences. Do you see that? It carries with it a huge wage. It carries with it a, a healthy price tag. What is the price tag for sin? What is the wage for sin? Well, according to the Apostle Paul, the wage for sin is death. It is spiritual death. It is eternal separation from God the Father. That is what we all deserve because we have sinned against a holy God. That's what Sean Jeffries deserves. That's what you deserve. And understanding that is so important to understanding why Jesus went to the cross. I'm reminded of so many other passages in, in the New Testament. For example, in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 3 through 4, the Apostle Paul talks with us about what the gospel is all about. Here is the core of the gospel. Paul says, For I delivered to you of first importance, as of first importance, what I'm talking with you about this morning, brothers and sisters, this is an issue of first importance, the gospel says. First importance, what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures and that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. You put that what Paul also says in 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 21 where Paul says that God made him, made his son Jesus who knew no sin to be sin or to be a sin sacrifice on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Going now to 1 Timothy 2 and verse 6, Paul says that Jesus gave himself as a ransom for all. Notice how Jesus gave himself as a ransom for all, not just a select few like the Calvinists suggest. No, Jesus gave himself for everybody. 
a ransom for all people. In fact, John also says the same thing in 1 John 2 and verse 2 when he says that he himself is the propitiation, the idea of the one who satisfied the wrath of God, he appeased the justice of God, Jesus himself is the propitiation for our sins, but not only our sins, but also for those of the whole world. My dear friends, notice how if there was anything that ever demonstrated the seriousness of sin to God, it was the death of Jesus Christ. It was the death of God's Son. It was the death of God's Son on a cross. The Bible says that Jesus died for a purpose. He died for sins. He did not die for his sins because he had no sins. Instead, he died for our sins. He died for my sins, and he died for your sins. He died for the sins of everybody in this room and everybody in the world. That's how serious sin is to God. That is how serious the penalty for sin is to God. That is how serious the penalty for adultery is to God. That is how serious the penalty for fornication and greed and gossip and covetousness is to God. That is how serious the sin of thievery and homosexuality and murder and uncontrolled tongues and drunkenness and, and lust are to God. While we may trivialize these things in our culture today, the Bible says that all of these sins are so serious to God that they cost Jesus' life on the cross. They are all the reason why Jesus went to the cross. We're all the reason why Jesus went to the cross because there is no doubt that we have all, we've all committed those kinds of sins at various times in our lives. When we study the cross, we learn about the seriousness of sin. But then a second lesson we also learn is we also learn a lesson about the Lord's submission to God. We learn a lesson about the Lord's submission to the will of his Father. In Hebrews chapter 5 and verse 8, what does the Hebrew writer say? Well, he says, although he was a son, he learned obedience from the things which he suffered. Put that with what the Apostle Paul says going into the book of Philippians. Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2. Please look at verse number 6. I'm going to Philippians 2 and in verse number 6, here the Apostle says, who although he existed in the form of God, this is a reference to Jesus, he did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself. He emptied himself of his position in heaven taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Notice how in addition to, to going to the cross to die for our sins, another reason why Jesus willingly went to the cross was because he was in complete submission to his father. He, he was in complete submission to the will of his father. This is something that he himself emphatically announces all throughout his ministry. 
For example, in John 5 and verse number 30, Jesus says, I can do nothing on my own initiative. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just, because I do not seek my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Put that with John chapter 6 and verse 38, where Jesus says, For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And then do you remember what Jesus prayed in, in the Garden of Gethsemane? Remember after he fell on his face, praying fervently to his father, he said, My father, if it is possible, let this cup, this cup of suffering, pass from me, yet not as I will but as you will. Throughout his ministry, Jesus wanted people to know that my life is all about pleasing my Father. I have been sent here to accomplish the will of my Father. He told people that over and over again, but not only did he publicly announce it throughout his ministry, he also demonstrated this attitude just by the way he lived his life. I think a great example of this is Matthew 26, verses 53 through 54. Here, when rebuking the apostle Peter, because Peter is trying to defend Jesus in the garden with a sword, he cut off Malchus' ear. Jesus told him to put the sword away, and he said, Or did you not think that I cannot appeal to my father, and he will at once put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels? How then will the scripture be fulfilled? We say that it must happen this way. Notice how even though there was nothing pleasurable or comfortable about going to the cross, Jesus was still determined to go through with it. Even though he could have called thousands of angels at any point to come to his aid and deliver him and wipe out the world, he still submitted himself to going to the cross because he was committed to doing the will of the Father. He was committed to fulfilling what the scriptures wrote. Jesus was in complete submission to his Father. The question is, is what about me? What about you? What about us in our lives right now? I mean, as we evaluate and examine our own hearts and our own lives right now, do we have an attitude like Jesus? I mean, right now in our lives, are we in full submission to the will of God? My dear friends, I hope we can all agree that if Jesus, the perfect and sinless Savior of the world, lived his life in full submission to the will of God, then, then we should as well, right? We certainly should as well. We certainly should be in full submission to the will of God when it comes to how we worship. And we certainly should be in full submission to the will of God when it comes to how we conduct ourselves in our marriages and how we raise our kids and how we treat our neighbor. And even when it comes to submitting to what God has told us to do to get our sins washed away by the blood of his son. You know, by now, all of you know that one of my favorite verses in the Bible, and you probably hear me say that a lot, but I, I, I really mean it now. One of my favorite verses in the Bible, Mark 16, 16, right? You hear me quote that one a lot. Mark 16, 16, Jesus says, he who believes and is baptized will be saved. Why do I like that verse so much? Because it's so clear, right? 
So easy to understand. You don't need a PhD or even a bachelor's, master's, or even a high school diploma to get that verse. In that verse, we clearly see that baptism is essential to our salvation. I love that verse. It's so clear. But several years ago, I was studying with a lady. She's not a Christian. She wasn't a Christian. And I, I, I asked her to, we're having a Bible study, and I asked her to read that verse out loud. I said, please read Mark 16 and verse 16. Tell me if baptism is essential. And so she reads Mark 16 and verse 16, and afterwards she says to me, she says, Sean, I, I, I see what that verse says. I see that baptism is essential for a person to be saved, but guess what? I don't like baptism, and I'm not going to do it. She said, I like Jesus. I like everything else he says in the Bible, but I don't like baptism. I'm never going to submit to baptism. That's what she said. And that lady, she had a, a very different mentality than Jesus, didn't she? But it's how when it came to Jesus, Jesus was in complete submission to the will of the Father. Whatever the Father desired, Jesus committed himself to doing it. That's the attitude that he carried with him in his life, and that's also the attitude we have to have if we're going to really please God. When we study the cross, we learn about the seriousness of sin. We learn about the Lord's submission to the will of God. And then third and finally, we also learn about the great love of God. The great love of God. You see, in addition to the cross being the ultimate symbol or expression of the seriousness of sin, we need to also understand that the cross is also the ultimate expression of God's love. It is also the ultimate expression of God's love for me and for you. I mean, don't we learn that in the most well-known verse in the Bible? John 3 and verse 16, what does it say? For God so loved the world. The world is everybody. Everybody in Phoenix, everybody in Arizona, everybody in America, everybody all over this globe. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. John 15 and verse 13, Jesus says, Greater love has no one than this, that one is willing to lay down his life for his friends. Paul says in Romans chapter 5 and verse number 8, But God demonstrates his own love toward us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. You see the point? You see how through the cross God settled the issue of if he really loves us once and for all. Through the cross, God exercised his love for us at the highest possible level. Through the cross, God provided for our greatest need, and that's our salvation need, our need to be justified and reconciled and, and saved from his wrath. The cross is the ultimate expression of God's love for mankind, and that's something we need to think about all the time. Beyond just when we take the Lord's Supper, we need to be thinking about the cross and what it represents about the love of God every single day. We need to think about this whenever we're tempted to sin. We need to think about this whenever we're tempted to fall away and leave the Lord. We need to think about this whenever we start questioning 
the love of God for us. My friends, well, if you ever get to a point in your life when you're rock bottom and you're discouraged and you're starting to question God's love for you, will you think back to the cross? Will you picture in your mind Jesus died on the cross for you? Will you understand that if God never did anything else for you ever again in your life, he's already done too much because he provided for your greatest need at Calvary? What I just want you to see is the message of the cross. Even though it's an ancient message, it has been preached by so many preachers for 2,000 years. It's still a powerful message. It's still a relevant message. It's still a message that we need to hear today. It's still the message that God has selected to save men from their sins. Paul says that in 1 Corinthians 1 and verse 18, he says, For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. So many people in the world, they look down on this message I preach today. They look down on the cross. They look down on salvation coming into the world through a man dying on the cross. So many people turn their nose up at that message. But the Bible says that to those who are being saved, this is the power of God. This is the message that God has selected to draw men unto him. The question is, have you obeyed it? Do you believe it? Have you allowed it to draw you to God? If not, and this morning, you have an opportunity to allow the message of the cross to draw you to God, to draw you to Jesus, to lead you to the waters of baptism so that you can leave here a new creature washed by the blood of the Lamb. And if there's anything we can do to help you with that, it'll be our pleasure. Come to the front right now as we stand and we sing.